All right, mate, you ready to go? I'm ready. Let's do it. Go! Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My guest today is Tim Travis of T&T Capital Management. Tim's a value investor based in Cota de Casa. He's one of the top-ranked investors in the tip ranks. We're going to hear from him right after this. Go! Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hi, Tim. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm very well. So... Um, I always say there's there are lots of different types of value investors. How do you describe yourself uh, as a value investor? I'd say that we're definitely deep value oriented, so probably not too dissimilar to you in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, we're looking for companies that are trading at deep discounts to intrinsic value, and you know, we look at things like price to earnings, price to book, uh, but we obviously do a lot of analysis on that book value and the quality of it, uh, EV to EBIT. Um, and, you know, I'd say one of the things that's, uh, you know, somewhat unique about us is that we're willing to take concentrated positions on those positions, uh, concentrated positions on the our top names in the portfolio. So, um, you know, we're going to allocate the most money to our top idea and so on and so on. Um, so maybe like 15, 20 names on average, but most of the money's in the top seven or eight. So there's, uh, there's a few things in there, but the way that uh, I became aware of you was seeing uh, the work that you had done in Assured Guarantee, which is a stock that I had on as well. And the other thing that I've seen you do a lot of work with is options. So that's two things I really want to dive into deeply today. But let's let's start with AGO. That's um, You've got a position in that and uh, you've been in that for a while. So yeah. just uh, can you give me a little background on the position and, and what's been happening and what you've, how you feel about it? Absolutely. Well, I mean, it, it came to me uh, through researching other companies in the industry. So, you know, when 2008 was really going down, I, I really was fascinated at everything that was going on. Obviously, I wasn't fascinated with what was happening in our portfolio, but I was managing much less money back then, of course, and had a, other jobs that I was doing, um, another job in commercial finance. Uh, and so I, I was still investing my own money and some family's money. And I, I started looking at MBIA, uh, which is a competitor. And because it had gotten so cheap, you know, it had gone down from AAA. And in doing my analysis on that company, I saw that Assured Guarantee was kind of in a prime position to consolidate the industry. Uh, they still had high enough credit ratings. Uh, that they could still write new business, which was very lucrative um, because the market had compressed so much. And then they were acquiring the other large competitor in Europe, FSA, uh, from from one of those European banks that kind of had to spin off assets. Uh, so I started investing in a shared guarantee in, in early 2009, late 2008. Um, March 2009, of course, when everything uh, hit the bottom, you know, the stock had gone down quite a bit and we continued adding 
all the way down. And, and we've really owned it since we've we've obviously done a lot of adding and taking profits at certain times and things like that. But uh, it's been a great investment. What's the what d- d- describe the business of of AGA? Because it's a little bit sure. uh, it's an unusual business uh, that I don't think it's a it's not not a lot of folks know what they do. I would agree. It's it's a municipal bond insurance company. So they're about double A rated, double uh, A plus by by uh, Kroll. And so you know, let's say that the city of uh, Rancho Santa Margarita is going to build a toll road, and they have a triple B plus credit rating. If AGO insures it with their AA rating, uh, Rancho Santa Margarita benefits because they pay uh, a lower interest rate. And so, uh, you know, that that's an attractive business because they take the premium up front and, you know, those bonds might be a 30, 30 year bond issuance. Um, so they, they get to invest the premiums for a long time and the defaults are very low on a percentage basis and the severity of those defaults are very low. Now, what made Assured Guarantee unique relative to its primary competitors, AGO, or excuse me, AMBAC and uh, MBIA, and there's like six others, was that they didn't get involved in insuring the CDO squared subprime garbage uh, that those other ones did. And they didn't really get involved in the, the guaranteed investment contract business. So what would happen is when all those subprime securities were being downgraded during the financial crisis, uh, companies like MBIA and AMBAC, uh, they were taking severe mark-to-market losses, and on the guaranteed investment contract business, they would have to post collateral, very similar to what happened with AIG and their credit default swap business. So AGO, great management. Dominic Federico's the CEO. He kept them out of that, still running the company extremely well today, and uh, you know, so that's a little bit about it. One of the uh things about AGO, one of the kind of unique features of it is that because it's got this sort of, it, it insures these munis, it's often uh, in the headlines in a bad way. If something happens, so if something happens in Puerto Rico or Illinois or so on, um, they're often in the headlines and that sort of seems to be when the stock gets whacked. So, You're so right. So <laughs> yeah. there's a, f- a few examples, but one that's going on right now is Puerto Rico. So just can mm. you just Give us uh, some color in Puerto Rico and and what you think's happening, how you think it can play out. Yeah, I mean, Puerto Rico, it's been known that there were issues there for quite some time. And then it was, I want to say 2014 or 2015, I forget now. It's been so long, this thing's been playing out. When uh, Padilla, their governor at the time, said, we just can't pay this debt. And they had been already negotiating to restructure their utility there a little bit. Um, provide some liquidity there, but they just basically said we can't pay anything. You know, then you had the Promesa legislation, which all in all I think is adequately fair. Uh, and uh, the Obama administration appointed an oversight board, and and that's where things kind of got a little pear shaped. Uh, the oversight board, their go- their role is to you know make sure that the PR government uh, produces audited financials. Uh, to make sure that, you know, there's fiscal responsibility. Uh, and basically, they were supposed to be paying debt unless uh, unless there's no possible way that they could have. So pay the debt that they can and, and that sort of thing. But uh, they haven't really done that. And so now they've restructured a, a little bit of the debt. They restructured the COFINA, which is the sales tax bonds. 
Uh, the seniors got 93 cents on the dollar. Uh, the juniors got about 57 cents on the dollar. Uh, to give you some, some perspective, uh, in December of 2017, uh, after Hurricane Maria hit and, and you know, leveled the island, uh, those junior cofinas, for instance, were trading at eight to 10 cents uh, on the dollar. And uh, so obviously it's been a lot better than what the outlook was then. And now the recovery is looking good. The economy is doing really well in Puerto Rico. It's much improved. Um, the oversight board, their term's actually almost up in a few months. So it'll be up to the uh, President Trump's administration uh, to appoint a new oversight board with the Senate. And so that's kind of where things stand currently. And uh, did you take a position in those bonds as well when they traded down? I did. So, I mean, for our firm, Assured Guarantee's been the largest or amongst the largest positions in our portfolio for quite some time. Uh, but, you know, and just like you said, the news is always bad on a company like this. You're just there's not a headline that's like going to be extremely favorable in a bond insurance company. It's, you know, if a city pays its debt, that's not a big deal. Right. Um, so, you know, in December of uh, 2017, when everything was hitting, you know, the President Trump said the debt had to be wiped out. Uh, you know, you had all these pictures and storylines of Hurricane Maria and the oversight board, you know, was was going crazy with just uh, saying that they're going to do fiscal plans with no debt service payments whatsoever. The um, there were two really big mutual funds that were huge in Puerto Rico. Uh, Oppenheimer and Franklin Templeton. And they had been, you know, they've done this many times, these types of restructuring situations. And they had been very supportive of Puerto Rico, but even they sold when the news was so bad. That's like when Seth Klarman, who also is invested, he had protesters outside his office, that sort of thing. So to me, that was just a huge opportunity. The legal contracts, like the general obligation bonds, for instance, they're, they have the highest payment priority. So above government expenses, government salary, all that sort of thing. Uh, yet they were trading at 18 to 20 cents on the dollar. Uh, PREPA, you know, secured debt. Uh, you have revenues there. It's just poorly managed. Uh, that was trading at like 28 to 30 cents a share. Uh, so yeah, we bought those. We bought the, the Cofina Juniors. And it's it's been a, an investment. Of course, you just wish you did more, right? But uh uh, it's been wonderful, and we're still holding them, uh, and we plan on holding them for quite some time. One of the uh, things that I love about the reporting on AGO is they give you this adjusted book value, which is a non-GAAP uh, measure, but it's, uh, I, I, think it's got, I think it's a pretty good representation of intrinsic value. How, how do you feel about do it? Does your valuation fall out close to adjusted value? Do you think that's a fair representation? I do. I mean, I mean you have a book value of 63 uh, so tangible book value of $63 per share. And then the adjusted book value is around $86 per share. And both those are growing, you know, rapidly because the company is buying back in excess of 10% of the common stock uh, of the market cap each year. You know, a very aggressive buyback program. But it, it's aggressive and it's not because what's happening is their portfolio is amortizing at a rapid rate. So the risk in the portfolios going down quite a bit, including their below investment grade exposures in spite of Puerto Rico. Um, one thing that's great about this company too is that they haven't reported a, a operating loss. 
uh, even during the financial crisis and and uh, during you know with Puerto Rico. So it's a very profitable company. They have a lot of surplus capital and they're taking advantage of that. So you have you know good management. That's why I've been comfortable making it a large position in the portfolio. But yeah, like somewhere in between book value and adjusted book value to me, Toby, would be a fair price. I think uh, when I the, one of the first articles of yours that I saw on AGO um, was you were you were, you had a, an option play in it. I think you were suggesting that you sell a put to get into it. Do you remember? Do you remember that? Article? We do it all the time. Yeah, I mean, we do that all the time with a lot of stocks. So, you know. Um, what we'll do is we'll identify a stock that we like and that we feel has a strong margin of safety. Uh, we like it a lot, but maybe maybe we'd, we'd prefer to wait for a, a cheaper entry price. Maybe we're a little concerned of the overall market and you know we just would like to dollar cost average into it. What we'll do is we'll sell a cash secured put below uh, the current market price and then, you know, we normally target about a 10 to 15 percent annualized uh, premium, assuming those options expire worthless. So if the stock's above the strike price of the put, you know, we should make 10 to 15 percent annualized, which is pretty good, you know, compared to like fixed income or something like that. And then our worst case scenario is that we're going to end up owning the stock at a much cheaper price. So that's a strategy that we use a lot uh, with AGO and with other companies. Do you have a preferred uh, period to the to the to the expiry? Do you look at a quarter out or six months out or a year out, or how, how do you think about that? It's a great question. I mean, it it varies. It, it varies depending on the volatility of the stock. I mean, we're not a option specialist hedge fund or something like that, where you know we're trying to maximize time decay in every sense or anything like that. What we're trying to do is we're looking at it from a value investor's perspective where you know we want to get the most protection possible so if oftentimes you know let's say the stock's at 45 and we're selling a a 40 put and collecting let's say a, a 400 premium just for example and let's say we're going a year out well our break even on that is uh, about 36 dollars per share so the stock could drop from 45 to 36 before it's at our break even um, so that's a much bigger margin of safety. And, and you know, with a adjusted book value of $86, you know, there's obviously a lot of upside. So often those would be some of our biggest long term gainers are when we're actually exercised on the puts and we're able to ride that up. So all else being equal, you probably prefer not to get uh not to have it put to you, but when it does actually happen, it's sort of like a forced it forces you down into the position anyway, which you would have bought anyway. You know, it works both ways. I mean, it's just, it's really interesting how it can happen. I mean, uh, in uh, 20, 2015, end of 2015, early 2016, that kind of minor bear market correction, whatever, uh, we had huge positions in the big banks, really big. And that's when oil was tanking and everyone was worried about uh, their energy exposure or whatever. And we did extensive analysis. I mean, I spent hours and hours and hours uh looking at at each company's exposure and i saw that it really was not going to be a big deal uh they just didn't have that much and it was a lot of investment grade stuff it wasn't going to be a problem uh so we ended up getting exercise on a lot of puts in january of 2016 and you know it worked out amazingly because the stocks rallied significantly that year 
And then you still had Brexit. And, and after that's when the election occurred and financials took off. So it, it turned a very stressful situation into a banner year. So I know it seems weird, but we're relatively agnostic either way uh, on it. It didn't feel like that minor of a uh, bear market in like 2015. No, it, did, it didn't, especially if you were heavy in financials looked, like you were. Looked like the real thing to me at the time. Yeah. I remember it pretty vividly. Everything's yeah. looked like the real thing since like March 2009 and nothing nothing has been. Uh, I just want to take a step back slightly. So um, how do you think about position sizing? How many positions do you have in a portfolio? And do you, how, how do you think about diversification? Do you... Do you like, do you have a limit on how many you include from the same industry or do you, you think that that's the way to make money when that industries, they all get cheap at the same time, so you sort of pile in? I mean, we'll, we'll take a pretty big industry bet. I mean, if, if you look at Warren Buffett's portfolio with Berkshire Hathaway right now, uh, they have you know roughly 40% of it into banks. And that hasn't been the case many times throughout history. I think the situation's a little different everyone's kind of fighting that last battle. And so they're not looking at the fact that these banks and financial institutions have double the capital ratios, double the liquidity. They're a lot safer than probably they've ever been. Uh, it's counterintuitive in a sense uh, to what the experience was back then. But so we feel that there's a huge opportunity there and, and in an expensive market, which we would argue is very expensive, that's somewhat of a bastion of safety uh, of, you know, uh, not taking permanent losses of capital and having good upside potential. You'll get volatility for sure. Um, but yeah, we'll have about 15 to 20 positions on average. Uh, you know, we might have a lot in a particular name, but some of that will be, you know, cash secured puts, some of that'll be covered calls. So it's really just, you know, we're willing to dollar cost average as things get cheaper. We're willing to take profits uh, when prices go up. Normally, when we hold a stock, we'll hold it for a few years. Uh, so we're focused on that end. But with the options, of course, there is uh, some shorter term gains that you'll take from time to time. Uh, we also have bonds, you know, but more the distressed type bonds like the Puerto Rico thing. Uh, we don't see a lot of opportunities in bonds or anything like that. But, you know, we'll be heavier in an industry if it's what we believe to be as good of a bet as you could find. So a company like AGO, you know, when the banks were a little cheaper than they are currently, we felt that way about them. Uh, but we try and spread it out as much as we can without taking, uh, without diluting, you know, our, our portfolio. What's, uh, so what's a top position uh, in the portfolio? Like how much of the portfolio will you put into it, including covered calls and cash secure sure. puts? I mean, for, you know, I'm a registered investment advisor, of course. So it has to match up with the client. But if someone is like me and has is fairly young and, and has a, a reasonable tolerance for volatility, we're not afraid to go 25 to 35% in a top position that we feel really good about. Um, but, but, you know, it varies by individual for sure. But that's, you know, like for me personally, that's not crazy. And I've done that many times. So when you get a position like that and you get some performance out of it, are you trimming as you go along or are yes. you waiting for a target? So you trim as you go. And so, yeah. I mean, that's one of the difficult things about being a, a value investor is that the stocks are least risky when you put them on. And so that's because they're at the biggest discount to uh, what you think the intrinsic value is. So that's when you sort of want to have the most in your portfolio. And then as it goes up, it becomes riskier 
because it's getting closer and closer to that value. So you've got to trim it back. So you, you, you do it the right way. You try to put on as much as you can right at the start yeah. and then trim as you go. You're exactly right. I mean, that's one of the tough parts. So like if you're not using a tool like options, for instance, it's really hard. Like let's take Citigroup, for example. You know, that stock uh, has traded in the 40s uh, over the periodic downturns we've seen. I think it traded in the 40s just last year, for instance. Uh, so you have, you know, tangible book in the mid 60s. Uh, you've got this company's earning, you know, 10% on on equity, roughly. Uh, and so, you know, you've got earnings power there. They're returning about 100% of their earnings to shareholders via dividends and stock buybacks. So in the mid 40s, it's a huge buy for us. We like we like Michael Corbett, the CEO and all that. Um, so but I mean, the thing is, that was trading in the 60s you know, earlier before the downturn, if you think it's worth 80, you might still be holding that stock forever. So, I mean, for us, we're, we're willing to, you know, sell a little bit at 65, you know, uh, sell a little bit at 70. And we might not make every dollar of it, but, you know, these things are volatile from time to time and, and it allows us to kind of buy when they're cheaper. Um, so it's not, you know, the Berkshire Hathaway approach. I think it's a little more kind of not comparing myself to him at all, but but it's more the active investing style of like the Buffett partnership years. So I just I want to go back into the uh, the options and the yield on the options, the way that the way that you think about that. Just uh, just a little bit more sort of detail on how you how you position both sides, puts and calls, and and sure. you know, define covered calls and cash secured puts for those for those listeners who aren't necessarily trading options all the time. Yeah, so a cash secured put just means you're not necessarily exploiting the margin factor. So if we're selling just a, a, a stock, let's say a stock's at $55 per share, and we're selling a, a $50 put expiring a year from now, and let's say we're collecting $500 of premium, uh, you know, basically what we're saying is if this stock, which is at 55, expires above $50, we keep $500 premium on $4,500 of maximum risk, 100 shares times the break-even price. Um, our worst case scenario is that we end up owning that stock at, at 45, which is the break-even price. So we look at it as a kind of a heads, we win, we get the income, you know, 500 over 4,500, nice double-digit return with, you know, junk bonds yielding 6% right now or whatever it is, I mean, right around there. Uh, that's a heck of a return. You know, you'll have a little more volatility with options. Worst case scenario, we end up owning a stock we want to own anyways. Let's say it's worth 80 uh, in our estimation. We own it at 45. Um, so that's cash secured. You're just saying you're you're allotting for the full $4,500 of potential exposure in your account. So Some people will blow themselves up with uh, margin. So sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you there, but yeah. I just I just want the listeners to understand that the, uh, the the risk profile of a of a uh, selling a put looks like the equity downside so your downside tracks it, it's like buying a share and if it goes to zero you go to zero as well but because and this uh, this is where you were just about to go I think when you because you can put so much more of your portfolio into the premium um, you can sell many many times your portfolio value. And so if you if that in fact happens, you can be wiped out. So I think that's what you're just yeah. about to say. Yeah, that that's what you want to avoid. Because I mean, when people really realize the, the power of selling puts, 
I mean, it's very sensible. Most people, when I kind of outline the strategy, if they're, they're not they're not akin to it, they'll say, you know, why doesn't everyone do this? And, you know, there's a lot of reasons. A lot of people can't really value a company, firstly. Uh, secondly, a lot of people aren't really wanting to own a stock. You know, they're not, they're not like that. They just think, hey, I want my options to expire worthless or I'll take my losses, that sort of thing. More of a trading mentality. Um, so you're exactly right. So cash secured is the important thing. I don't want anyone to blow themselves up. And that, uh, and that might mean we're not advocating that. So you might have a portfolio, if you have a portfolio and you might put 10% of the portfolio into any given, say you want to put 10% of the portfolio into AGO. I'm not necessarily recommending that. I'm just saying, for example, if you wanted to put 10% into AGO and then you go and look at the options. So the actual option premium that you might get might be 1% or something like that of your entire portfolio value, but that could still be putting 10%. That's like having a 10% position on. That's a notional 10%. Yes, yes. That's why you always want to look at kind of your max exposure on it. You know, what's your full put exposure and, and, and look at it that way um, is the important way to do it for sure. So let's talk about the other side then, uh, the covered calls. Sure. So covered calls we use less frequently, um, but it's, great. it's a great strategy to enhance the yield. So if you have a dividend paying stock like AT&T, for instance, uh, that'd be a dog of the, the Dow uh, after its poor performance last year. You know, the yield six, six and a half percent currently, and it trades at a reasonable multiple, a lot of debt. So you've got to kind of be comfortable that they're going to pay down that debt. But it's a stock we do actually like down here. Um, so you've got, you know, basically a junk bond uh, yield. We might sell a call, let's say at 35 or something like that. And I'm not sure what those option prices are currently, but maybe you pick up another 5% uh, premium from selling that call out a year from now. You know, there you're at 6% on the dividend, 5% on the call, so that's 11%. And then you have upside from 30 to 35. Uh, it can be an attractive way to, you know, get a little more yield out of your portfolio if you're comfortable with that. And so if the stock hits that price, you've already you've said i'll sell at that price you're willing so. to sell it exactly and that that'll happen i mean we'll we'll sell covered calls and there'll be stocks we feel really good about i mean if we feel stocks worth 60 we're not going to sell a call at 35 that's not that doesn't make sense but if it's worth 40 maybe you know i mean that's we want to sell as things converge to intrinsic value uh so so you know but but it, it's a learning process you kind of have to coach your clients, if you're a financial advisor, or you have to coach yourself uh, to kind of deal with the peculiarities of options. You know, there can be uh, pretty big spreads between the bid ass, so you've got to be cognizant of that sort of thing. Or one of the great things about options is that they provide a lot of protection to your portfolio in the way that we're using them, but you have to kind of let time do its thing. Time decay is a big deal. So if the market's down, 5% tomorrow, we're going to feel the same hit, even though we have a lot of protection layers. But at the time of option expiration, you get the full benefit of those premiums. And, and that's where you see the, the bigger margin of safety. And so uh, you, you see on both sides, you seem to be selling uh, options. How do you think about buying and selling options? I mean, I've seen a lot of options. Uh, you know, I, I, I gained experience working at firms that really specialized them, and they did a lot on things like commodities and stuff. They didn't, they didn't have a lot of equity exposure. And I saw kind of the success that most people had when they were mostly buying options, and it was not good. 
it was not good. Now, people can do it successfully, obviously, that happens, but it's a tough investment to manage. Uh, firstly, you know, if you're buying options, the probabilities are somewhat against you. So how much of your portfolio are you willing to put in it? You know, I mean, you might get spectacular returns on it, but are you really willing to build that five, 10% position to have it make a material impact? You know, secondly, let's say you're hedging your portfolio by buying puts. And I see this all the time. You buy in the puts and then you get, you know, a, a winter of, of 2018 in the market tanks. Are we going to sell the puts and lock in the profit or are we going to hold just in case the market continues to go downward? It's a very difficult investment to manage. And I don't think it would help generate better returns for me or my clients. So that's why we don't use them ourselves. So one of the uh, strategies that Joel Greenblatt talks about in his his yellow book is buying leaps. So I think sometimes that's a good if you have a if you have a stock and you like the you like you think that it's very undervalued but you think that there's some genuine risk that the downside is zero. I think sometimes that's a good time to use a leap because you're already saying, well, I'm not going to get I'm not going to expose $10 of the portfolio right. to this stock where the downside could be zero or $3, whatever the position might be. But I will, I'll put on like a dollar or 30 cents and see, uh, you know, then if I'm right and it, the, the risk goes away, then I can get that you know, good run to the upside. And if the risk, if it, if it ends up not working out, then, you know, I've only risked 30 cents or a dollar or whatever. Do, so do you ever use leaps? Do you ever think, do you ever think about them in that way? You know, I, I've used them in the past, but for me, it's just, I like time working for me, not against me. It, it just, the decision-making on it is challenging. So in that same type of scenario, I'm going to just position size it minimally. Uh, you know, it might be equity. different than a, a lot of money managers would be like, oh my gosh, 20% in a, in a top core position or whatever. That's crazy. You know, we're doing that on, that on companies that, we feel have the maximum margin of safety where you know volatility can occur and it does occur with us but we don't see permanent losses of capital as being you know we see it as a very low probability thing for us to do that but if it's like a company that we feel has a lot of upside but it could be i'll give you an example fannie fannie mae preferreds freddie mac preferreds you know i think that that's an attractive investment i think that i think that there's a lot of reasons it should work but it you're, you're really betting against the government in a lot of ways, and that's a dicey situation. So for something like that, you could lose everything or you could make three, four times your money maybe. We're going to position size that uh, in, a, in a very small way uh, you know, to, to hedge for the risk. What's, what's small in something like that, a point or three points? Or... Yeah, I mean, it depends on the client, right? right. But, but yeah, like, like two or three percent you know, or something like that. Then if it wins, you know, it's an 8% position or something like that. But I, I've learned, you know, that it, it's with the government, it's tough. They can do whatever they want. They really can in most situations. So uh, value investing's had a really tough eight years or so. And uh, I mean, it's, it's been hard to keep up with the S&P 500, which you can get for basis points. And uh, you can pay, put as much money into it as you want. Uh, what are your thoughts on passively investing in the index versus, say, you know, being a value investor, picking your stocks? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think you have to first define what passive investing is. I think when a lot of people like I think when a lot of uh, individual investors are thinking about it, they're almost thinking about like just the S&P 500. 
But if you're in just the S&P 500, are you comfortable with 30, 40% risk? Maybe you're close to retirement or whatever. So is that your definition of passive investing or are you thinking you know, a 60, 40 stock bond type allocation? So I think first you kind of want to define that. Secondly, you want to really look at, are you going to be pulling money out or are you doing, when you're doing a basic asset allocation, any of those actions or rebalancing any of that, those are active endeavors. So I think that there's ambiguity about the definition of passive and active investing. Um, I'd feel better about passive investing if it wasn't year 10 of a bull market. You know, if if it's, you know, March 2009 and the market's cheap and you're just, you know, you're investing for your young child and for their education, it'd be like S&P 500 is a great option, you know, but with valuations where they're at, being 100% long stocks doesn't seem very sensible. And a lot of the modeling that's done on like high, uh, past returns on both equities and bonds are in the last 30, 40 years when when uh, interest rates have almost been heading nothing but down, you know, so when rates go up or, or when or if they do, you know, that changes that math a lot. And you could easily get more periods of 10, 15, 20 years uh, of very low returns for just an index. Uh, so I think people need to be aware of that. And are they willing, you know, are they still going to stay passive during an environment like that? And if they're not, then it's worthless for them. When you're investing for your own, for, for, for your clients and your portfolio, you're only looking at, are you looking at domestic US equities only? No, we, we definitely have international exposure. I mean, I, I see some interesting opportunities with Brexit, um, you know, I think that there's, uh, you know, once that situation works itself out, I, I think there's going to be some opportunities there. And I think that while it seems very dark in Europe, I mean, growth is really low. German growth is low. Every, every Italy's kind of a concern. I think that having a, a percentage of your portfolio there and, and, you know, Asia to some extent, as long as you understand the businesses, uh, you know, I think I think it's smart to be diversified internationally as long as you understand the, the businesses you're in. So outside of uh, AGO and some of the financials, what other industries are you looking at? What other stocks are you looking yeah. at that you think are interesting? Well, Kennedy Wilson is an interesting company. I, I think if, if you research the story, I think you'd find it interesting. Just that they, uh, they're some of the smartest guys I've seen in real estate. They bought a massive uh real estate portfolio from Bank of Ireland in 2011, uh, when the European crisis was at its peak. So they picked up all these loans all over Ireland, all over the UK at just incredibly low prices. And they've been able to develop uh, real estate and, and you know enhance them and, and some really exciting projects. And it's been a, a huge winner for them. And so they have a lot of exposure in Dublin. The, the stock's probably trading cheaply because they have exposure to the UK and so the Brexit uncertainty. Uh, they have multifamily on the West Coast and now they're they're kind of locking in some profits in California and Washington and they're going into faster growing areas like Boise, Idaho and, and Utah. So that's a company like where you're getting 4, 4% on the dividend and we think it has 40 to 50% upside uh, as you know, their net operating income picks up as, as more of these projects come online. So that's one that I like quite a bit. Uh, and so, where do you where do you see the valuation there, and where's the where's the stock sort of trading at the moment? Sure, the stock's around twenty twenty one dollars uh, a share, and we think it's worth probably twenty eight to thirty dollars uh, within two to three years. 
you know, you look at some of their comps and 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 they have uh, in place net operating income growth coming. So it's it's not hard to see where it's going to come from. The projects just need to come online. And, you know, we're pretty optimistic on, on Ireland and Irish growth. And I, th I think they're making a lot of the right decisions. They also have an asset uh, management division where they partner with, you know, large insurers like Fairfax, uh, for instance, or Alliance uh, in the U in uh, Europe, and they'll they'll do joint ventures to to buy projects, and they get a management fee on that. So that's an attractive revenue stream that they're going to be growing. So I feel like it's a great long term play. If interest rates stay low, you know, I think that that's a a great way to uh, you know get a good good income and good upside appreciation. And uh, the uh, a restaurant stock that we were discussing. <laughs> Well, that's one that that I, I don't think is uh, necessarily a value investment. It's it's a company that we made an investment in a, a long time ago, Fiesta Restaurant Group. And what happened was I was living in Miami and South Florida, and right across from where I was living, uh, there was this restaurant, Pollo Tropical, and it was insanely busy all the time. And I I thought it was Mexican food. I really had no idea what it was. And I tried it one time, and it was really good. And it's always busy, night and day. And uh, it's healthy and everything. And I went to a few other ones and, and I saw they're all busy. I started researching the stock and, and Pollo Tropicals had higher um, annual revenues than Chipotle, which was at its peak at that time and stuff like that. And then they have another chain down in Texas called Taco Cabana, which is a very, very high producing restaurant as well. But they had very poor management for a few years. And now we haven't owned it for quite some time. We just started kind of building a position now. Uh, but we, they have a good management now. A CEO came from Benihana's and had made quite a bit of money for investors uh, that own that restaurant. And so we think that that's kind of an interesting three to five year play, assuming, you know, management delivers. I wouldn't make it a big position or anything like that. But it, it seems like a right stock for activism, too. Just one to watch. And you said it has higher same store revs than Chipotle. Is that what you're saying? Well, same store sales growth is not great right now. Um, but but they had higher same store revs than Chipotle, you know, back in 2014 when, when it was kind of a big position. You know, to give you some perspective, at that point in time, the stock, you know, rose from uh, the teens, I believe, to, you know, 40, 40 something. Um, so I think we bought it, you know, kind of in the low 20s, maybe high teens and sold it in the 30s. And now the stock's trading at like $14 again, uh, $14 a share. So it looks pretty interesting to us. They tried to, ex to expand into Texas and Atlanta and, and it didn't go well, which I find a little bit surprising. So it's more or less a company that I'm keeping my eye on. They have not franchised many restaurants or anything like that. So I think it's a right play for activism. If you saw like a Bill Ackman or a Engage Capital type company get involved, I think it would be really interesting. Um, it's been a tough time for value investors. And uh, part of that has been, I think, that the market has been so expensive. Do, how, how do you think about, do you think about the market? How do you think about it if you do? I mean, I certainly do. You know, I, I do think about it, but it's kind of like Buffett and Charlie Munger say, you know, whenever I've tried to kind of make a bet on interest rates to any extent or really market valuations, it's never really a great result. You know, I don't feel it's worth spending a ton of time on. 
I like the Howard Marks kind of philosophy of, of market cycles and, and understanding where you are in that cycle. Um, so, you know, we're really focused on valuation. That's why I think a strategy like selling puts out of the money on stocks you want to own anyways. Sure, if, if uh, you're doing that on AGO, for instance, and if the stock doubles, you know, over the next two years, you would have been better off owning the stock only, you know, and we own the stock, but but selling the puts might be a, a little better uh, risk adjusted return in our eyes. So doing that sort of thing on various companies and really being diligent on valuation, uh, you know, makes a lot of sense to us. So I think you want to be very disciplined. I definitely wouldn't want to be 100% long stocks like you are in a passive index fund, for instance. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think that the market's expensive and I've, I've felt that it's been expensive, like nosebleed expensive for an extended period of time, but none of that thinking has, has helped me at all. Like it's just one of those things that, and I think sometimes it can, dist- if you're a value guy, it can distract you a little bit too because it's entirely possible that you get a scenario like 2000 or the late 1990s where the market is really, really expensive, but value stocks are not. Value stocks are right. cheap. And then if, if you if you can keep focused on that value, you know, just the undervalued stuff and stay in that undervalued stuff, you can sometimes get that experience that we saw in the early 2000s where just being long those undervalued stocks, they were going up while the market was coming down for a few years there. And that's where a lot of guys like Pabri and Spear kind of made their name because that was when they were... They were just doing that. They were long only in a market that was falling and going up. You're so right. And people forget that aspect of it. And that's one of the things that kind of shaped my philosophy a little bit is, is uh, my first job out of college was actually Vanguard. Um, so, I mean, I wasn't there a long time. I, it, wasn't, it wasn't for me. Uh, it wasn't exactly portfolio manager job that I had. Uh, but I was dealing with a lot of clients. And, and so 2004, you know, you've, you've kind of endured the tech bust, you know, people had really lost a lot of money. Uh, they were somewhat disillusioned with investment uh, or with investing in stocks in general. And so I, I think about that with passive investing. I, I don't know a lot of people. I don't remember a ton of people that were just, you know, standing pad and, you know, investing for the long term. I mean, of course, they're out there, but you have to factor in psychology of your clients or yourself, you know, in the investment decisions that you're making. And you're exactly right. That's when a lot of these value people develop their their best performance. Bruce Berkowitz, great example of it. You know, he had phenomenal years then. And, you know, I, I was thinking I, I was rereading uh, one of my past articles, actually. And I from 2000 to 2010, the CGM Focus Fund run by Ken Hebner. I don't know if you remember that one, but yeah. he did a lot of trading in and out and, and he was always on CNBC and he was compounding at 18% per annum, best performing fund uh, during that time. But his individual clients averaged a negative 11% return per year during that time. It's just crazy. So that's why, you know, as a portfolio manager, we have to build portfolios that our clients can can endure and we have to educate them on, on how to respond uh, to market downturns. And what's great is like, we have a great client base where, you know, when stocks are really cheap, I'll say, look, this is a time I'm personally adding a lot of money into my portfolio. This is a great time to buy stocks and they'll respond and they don't panic. You know, that takes time. I mean, we've been in the business eight years. Uh, and so we, we spent a lot of time educating them. Yeah. I remember that Hebner story very well. I think I included it in, I think it's in quantitative value that, uh, he was just so volatile that when he was up, everybody would pile in 
and then he'd go down and then they'd jump out and then he'd go back up again when they were out. And so he averaged 17%, I think over a decade, something like that. But the average investor in his fund, I think, could have been negative 11%. They might have lost money. It was negative money. 11. That's yeah. crazy. Uh, it's insane. And, and I mean, that's what I think about. So, I mean, I saw... I've noticed that there's a lot of firms that really are advocates of the passive investment style, whatever that means. Uh, now, you know, I, and I don't remember them in 2011 or, or 2010. You know, I remember a lot of people saying buy and hold is dead. And I remember the gold coin commercials. I remember the annuities, private REITs. I remember all of that stuff, which was very popular back then when the markets were indeed cheap. So now, you know, in your tenable market, everyone is passive, it's great. But then even during the, the fourth quarter, I saw, I saw some of those same companies saying, look, it's not too late to, you know, readjust your portfolio. And you don't really want to do that when your portfolio is down 15%. You know, sure, if you're going to panic the next day, maybe you need to do it. But you want to have those conversations prior to a downturn like that. It's a funny time in the market. It's one of the, my Twitter feed in particular. I have never seen so many people. I mean, I th- values performed really poorly for an extended period of time. I've never seen so many people just making fun of value investors, like so convinced that it doesn't work. And it doesn't help when, so the value factor, which is price to book, the cheap value factor, I mean, it's down for the decade, which is extraordinary. And uh, it's never underperformed by this, this level ever. Like in whatever we, however many, like a hundred years of data or eighty years of data or something like that. So I think, in some ways, that sort of makes me feel good because it makes me feel that we're getting when when people are just outright laughing at David Einhorn, who's you know probably a genius. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel that we're close to the bottom for value. But then I go and look at the the value portfolios aren't that cheap historically. It's just that the most expensive stuff is as expensive as as is it has ever been. But the value stuff isn't that cheap. Do you, what do you what do you find when you're looking? Do you find you've got enough to fill a portfolio? Do you find that there are enough opportunities around? You're very very concentrated, so you can find enough. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think that there are enough opportunities. I mean, it's great when you can find something Puerto Rico related, for instance. I mean, that was fantastic because your returns are not going to be highly correlated with the overall market on something like that. Um, probably a similar situation with like the Fannie Mae Preferreds, uh, which is not a big position for us. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't like that risk reward as much as I did the Puerto Rico bonds, for instance. But yeah, we do find enough, and and it's always weird. Like when I see like a value fund, I really don't know what that means. You know, I mean, it, it's like they say, it's like all intelligent investing is value investing. But what some people's definition of value investing and others could be totally different things, and. You know, I saw some of that uh, chatter about the book value and I was thinking about it. I think a lot of that has to be related to kind of intangible and goodwill write downs. And also, I wonder how much of an impact some of those like major dilutions with like Citigroup had on those numbers. Because I think about it, I mean, we were buying, you know, Morgan Stanley at $13 when, you know, book that when it was at 40% of of tangible book value per share. And, and, you know, same thing with Citigroup, Bank of America, Bank of America at six, $7 per share when the book value was, you know, around 20. I mean, it's worked pretty well for us and we're a little bit of an outlier in the value space. So sometimes I wonder, I, I think that, you know, the minutia gets lost in, in the big data on things like that. I, I'd, I'd be curious to see what it looks like when it's broken down further. 
I think part of the prop that that quantitative buying of that low price to book seems to it, it ends up buying a lot of very highly levered companies just because they tend to carry a lot of debt. So you really only got a, a thin little sliver of equity, and that's what you're discounted to when you when you're buying them. But I think but the, the, there is a sort of secular issue where there have been some some changes in the accounting rules, and a sort of a, a more of an approach to buybacks that. Um, you have these companies that have negative equity, and how do you account for negative equity in a, in sure. a low price to book portfolio? And it's often those companies that have performed quite well because that's company that's a company that where management's reasonably focused on shareholders, and uh, they are in fact buying back stock when they're when they're discounted. They've made so much money that they're able to do that. It's just that for whatever reason the accounting can't quite capture what's going on there, and so they're just ignored. I think O'Shaughnessy Asset Management has a good paper on that and they talk about two types, veiled value and negative equity as sort of distorting the returns to price to book. That would make sense. And and I, I agree. I don't think price, like for financial stocks, tangible book could be a, a very good metric. But for most companies, I don't think book value is that, that great. I mean, I'd much rather do the fires multiple on something like that, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, and I mean, you have to look at it. I mean, it, it is kind of like, Buffett, you know, the way he's changed his investment style. I mean, goodwill is a, a big deal. You know, the patents, the technologies, you know, those those things are are what are defining success and failure for companies, not not necessarily, you know, their their you know shareholder equity. And R and D. R and D, which is sort of yeah. expense for the most part and not capitalized. So it's probably an argument that you've got an asset there. But it's just without a doubt. I look at that. Yeah, that's that's a huge, huge thing to look at. And and it it like when Microsoft, I mean, I remember when Microsoft was uh, trading at $25, $28 per share, something like that. I want to say like 2013, something around there. Cisco was in the mid teens. Those companies were really cheap because you had kind of the cloud and the uncertainty that 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 had. And, and Apple was kind of making its way. But, uh, you know, those companies were still spending 10 percent of revenues a year on R&D. And you see what they've been able to do. They've been able to kind of rejigger the portfolio and, and uh, come out with great technologies that have kept them, uh, you know, in the top of their respective spaces. And I just wish I would have held on, you know, to be honest, that would have been an easier ride, I think, than dealing with financials. That's that's every value investor's lament, right? I wish I'd held on. Like I, I did all the work when it was down. I knew it was going to survive. And then it got to my target price and I sold out. And then it went up five times from there, something like exactly. that. Exactly. I always say that, I forget which stock it was, but I bought it right and it was up 30% and I sold out and then it went and then it ran like 10 times from there. So it doesn't count. you know. Yeah. Yeah. I know the feeling we all do, unfortunately. So uh, I remember Microsoft pretty well in 2013. I didn't end up, I didn't buy it, but I, I, I remember it being very popular in value circles. And I think one of the reasons was that was one of the few years when they had their revenue might have declined year on year, which is unusual. If you look at Microsoft's very long history, it's grown pretty strongly. So that's often the difficulty, right? As you're assessing these situations, is that revenue falling off? Is that is that a vision of the future where revenues just keep on dropping? Or And then they turned around and it kept on going again. Do you, how, how do you think about that when you're putting on a position? Are you looking at, I mean, often that's the reason, right? That return on invested capital is impaired, revenues are falling. It looks like you might be about to see a downturn. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to look at is this company losing their competitive position? And so like for Microsoft during that time, 
they, you know, office and, and word, or excuse me, office, office was slowing down a little bit. Uh, but, uh, but they were just starting to see the growth in Azure, but it was, it was a very small portion of, of the business back then. It was tiny. Um, so, you know, as things were kind of transitioning, Xbox, you know, really wasn't super profitable or anything like that. So as things were transitioning, there was uncertainty, but the valuation made it a heck of a buy. I mean, I think it was like 12 to maybe 14 times earnings uh, and maybe less than that on a free cash flow basis. Now, the wild card you had was Steve Ballmer. And, and I'll never forget when, you know, as his parting shot to Microsoft shareholders, when he bought Nokia, you know, I mean, the, the hardware set, which was, I mean, now Surface is actually something. So I maybe, you know, maybe it didn't work out as bad, but I mean, it was kind of one of those weird acquisitions. And then, you know, he left right after and, you know, Satya Nadella has just done a stellar job with the company since, and it succeeded, you know, my expectations then, but you had a margin of safety. And I, I think that that actually would be a pretty good stock, uh, you know, from a, Free cash flow base. If you can buy a quality tech franchise uh, with a defensible position that's able to invest, you know, 10% a year in R&D at a 10% plus free cash flow yield, you know, that's attractive. But stocks were cheaper then. I mean, a lot of, there were a lot more opportunities then. Right. I, I sort of think that up to 2014, the market was, I think the market was expensive, but I don't think it was stupid expensive. Like I think since 2014, it's become stupid expensive, you know. Well, you got to adjust for interest rates, you know, I right. mean, that's, that's the tough part of it. So, I mean, if, if interest rates are, are where they're at now, 10 years from now, stocks are not going to look expensive. Um, but if interest rates are, I mean, I mean, it's not impossible. You see serious inflation, you know, I'm not predicting that, but if you think about the extremes that the fed has done and, and globally what's occurring, you know, inflation is kind of based on expectations and perceptions and, and, you know, if you see yields way higher, I mean, you could see a disastrous situation for equities and especially bonds, of course. But, you know, that's why you want to you want to invest in things that have some pricing power and that could benefit from higher rates and, you know, be nimble on your feet to some extent. But interest rates are the wild card, uh, you know, like the the Kate ratios and stuff like that. You, you just have to kind of factor that in. I, I agree the long-term returns don't look great from here, which is why I wouldn't want to be passive and passively invested. But the wild card is interest rates. One thing I know I don't want is I don't want bonds. Like that, that to me is a very unattractive risk reward. In the 70s, they were called conf, uh, certificates of confiscation. Exactly. I mean, you could see, you could imagine why, but I don't think, I think there's a lot of people in the business that really don't study their history. And of course, a lot of people that just, you know, invest in their 401ks or whatever, and they, they don't understand the impact of, of higher rates and inflation. I mean, the 10 years at 2.6% and, you know, if inflation's around 2%, you know, I mean, you're, you're getting nothing. You're not getting compensated for interest rate or inflation risk. And so, that's why the attractiveness of using strategies like a you know cash secure put on a on a value stock to me makes a ton of sense. Well, two um, two companies that and possibly one of these was responsible for some of the the pain in Microsoft. That two companies that have been value stocks on occasion over the last five years: are Apple and Google. Do you have any Do you have any thoughts on? Let's start with Apple. Well, so like I know that. A lot of people, I know you've been very positive on Apple and, and I understand it. I mean, you look at what Buffett's doing in it and, and I like I like the company, but I think there's a big difference between Google and Apple in that 
cons hard consumer electronic hardware, you know, so much of their revenue is derived from that that iPhone. And it's unparalleled in history that a company's been able to maintain their margins. And I know this is an old argument. I mean, many people have made this many times and they've been wrong time and again. And people will point to the services business, but that's still a very small business relative to hardware. And with the company so large, it's tougher for me to understand, you know, where the growth is really going to come from. So I understand why the multiple is cheap. It might turn out to be a phenomenal investment here, but when I look at Google and kind of the things that they're doing, uh, you know, with uh, self-driving cars and, and you look at YouTube, I mean, I see YouTube and Netflix as really the future of, of TV. And I think YouTube's position stronger than Netflix is, is even. Uh, and so I think that that's kind of an underappreciated aspect uh, in, in many ways, you know, everyone, if, if you're in business and you're advertising, you know, your, your main options are Google and, and Facebook and, and, you know, to a lesser extent now you have Instagram and, and maybe Amazon. Um, so I, I like Google's position more personally. What, why do you prefer, what, why do you like uh, the business economics or the prospects of YouTube over Netflix? Well, I mean, Netflix, I think is content driven. I mean, they, they have to really pay a lot for their content. Google pays for content, but I think it's just a lot more attractive. You know, if, if I'm going to watch something, I, I'll always look on Google, whether it's, you know, sports, you know, getting ready for the NFL draft, whatever, you know, seeing a, a, a podcast, what, you know, they have, they have access to lower cost content, whereas Netflix is paying so much to acquire uh, these franchises and a lot of it's unappealing. I mean, I, some of my favorite shows are on Netflix and, uh, but a lot of it, I, I don't like right now, like there's nothing I'd want to watch on there. Whereas on YouTube, there's a million things that I, I just only don't have time to watch. The, the crazy thing about YouTube is it's got guys like Joe Rogan putting their stuff up and they pay that Joe Rogan puts his show up. I don't know. Some, some number of millions of people watch that show then they collect the ad they collect the advertising revenue from that then pay him rather than the Netflix model which is every month there's a subscriber paying some money but they have these enormous content acquisition costs and it's resulted in them having they got an enormous amount of debt in there in Netflix you're in saying. Netflix yeah oh with, without a doubt I mean the balance sheet is is ugly I mean it's it's not a stock for guys like you or I really but I mean I mean if if Apple came out and bought it that wouldn't be shocking either, you know, so it, it can do really well, but it's something that I don't think I personally would feel comfortable owning, you know, at, at current prices, whereas something like Google, the, the valuation is really not that demanding. Um, you know, it, it's not it's not something I would invest a lot in at current prices, but on a sell off or something like that, that's a company I'm very comfortable owning. Same with Facebook, honestly, we did. We did uh, add to Facebook and kind of build build a little more of a position on Facebook, uh, selling some puts, especially because volatility had gotten jacked up last year uh, when when they were going through all their their troubles. And you look at that franchise, and it's Facebook and and Instagram are really two of the the trendiest places to advertise. Still, I know that they're losing some of their younger uh, clientele or or, or uh, subscribers. Uh, especially Facebook, but Instagram's kind of making that up. So I think that, you know, at the right valuations, those those can be great companies. I think the big risks to um, Facebook and Google and Amazon to some extent are probably trust-related, right? The government getting upset with, or maybe privacy too in Facebook's. Facebook seems to be 
you know, Google, I, pro- I think, probably collects as much information on you as Facebook does, but for whatever reason, Google manages to stay under the radar, which is definitely makes it more of a, probably might make it more attractive. But how do you handicap a risk like, you know, the government getting tougher on privacy or antitrust? Well, I mean, I think you have to take it into consideration, and, and especially when you're paying a more demanding multiple than like 50% of tangible book value for a financial, a profitable one. So it's a different type of investment. But if you look at where there's been antitrust before, you know, it's been situations like uh, Microsoft or AT&T in the early 80s. And, you know, I I don't know the numbers, maybe you do, but I bet you a basket of AT&T and the baby bells would have done quite well for you, you know. So you know, I mean, imagine what would the market capitalization of YouTube be if they spun that out? And their CFO, Ruth Porat, is a very smart, smart uh, CFO coming from Morgan Stanley. She did a fantastic job there. So something like that wouldn't shock me, but they have no reason to do it right now. I mean, things are too good in that in that arena. They don't have to do those types of value enhancement moves for the stock just yet. Uh, that's coming up on time, Tim. If uh, somebody wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, absolutely. They can find our website at ttvalueinvesting.com. And so they can contact us through that way uh, directly, or they can reach out to us at 805-886-8140 as well. Um, And so we work with with clients all over the country, both institution and individuals. And you're on Twitter? Yes, Twitter. Uh, I'm not sure what my handle is, but Tim Travis, you'll find me. Uh, I, I just got into that like a year and a half ago or whatever, so I'm still I'm not that great with social media and things like that. We'll, we'll stick it in the we'll stick it in the show notes, so so anybody who wants to find you, they can track it I down. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm lacking on followers, so feel free to follow me. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Thanks very much for spending the time, Tim. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Toby. Appreciate it. Pleasure.